Good morning, friends. This is Garland Young, co-teacher of the Journey Sunday School class <clears throat> with a Sunday School lesson for this Sunday, June the 12th. It's, we're starting in a new study guide called Prayer That Moves Heaven, Power with Purpose. And our scripture passage for today comes from Ephesians chapter 6. So I hope that you have your Bibles with you. And if you do, please turn to Ephesians 6. In a few minutes, we're going to be reading verses 17 through 20. Today's lesson is entitled, Battle Ready, Ephesians 6, 17 through 20. And I want to begin with a few questions, either you can consider within your own heart or discuss with your family or friends or fellow Sunday school members, those who are around you. First of all, is there a part of your life that you currently think is under somebody else's control? Well, this is a malady that we often have to face in life. Uh, maybe we have that boss who's pressing us a little bit too hard. Maybe we have <clears throat> uh, the IRS auditor who's after us. Perhaps we have uh, some healthcare professionals that we're struggling with. Uh, maybe there's a coach uh, who is in control of part of our life and it makes it rather uncomfortable for us, is something that we all have to deal with at certain points in our life. <clears throat> Sometimes we feel like our lives are out of control. Well, what denotes out of control? How do you know when your life is out of control? Uh, does it mean that there's nobody controlling it? Or does it mean instead that somebody else is controlling it, but just not you? Now, I'm not exactly a control freak, but some would call me a control enthusiast, let us say. And I think it's sometimes something, it's something that we all feel sometimes, and that's the need to feel that we're in control. Why do we feel the need to be in control? Why wouldn't we be satisfied with someone else having control over our entire lives? They could tell us what to eat, what to wear, where to go, when to go there, <clears throat> who to hang out with, what we're going to do with our lives, how to handle our relationships, our money, uh, our faith, etc. No, instead, there's something about the human constitution that wants to be in control. And as a matter of fact, the issue of control is really the root issue behind the theology of chapter six of the book of Galatians. Uh, and we're going to talk about this concept of control here in just a minute in terms of the armor of God. <clears throat> Let's read now. Ephesians 6, verses 17 through 20. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. And so the author, speaking as Paul, uh, brings himself to the forefront here at the end of the letter of Ephesians and mentions himself as an ambassador in chains. And he encourages the Ephesians to pray for him as they should pray for all the saints. Well, I mentioned a moment ago that really the battle described in Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20 
is really a battle for control. <clears throat> In the ancient world, persons were concerned about who or what, specifically what forces, had control over their lives. Persons did not have a strong sense of autonomy as we do in modern American culture. Instead, they were more concerned about the external forces that had control over them. Politically, it could be the governor or the emperor. <clears throat> and in, in terms of a pre-scientific age, such as those, that age in which uh, biblical personalities lived, there was very little control to be had through things like science, uh, or education or economics. Persons were poor, they lived in a pre-scientific age, and they tended to believe that large portions of their life, if not their entire life, was due to forces that were entirely beyond their control. And sometimes these forces were considered to be supernatural powers. It was often believed in the ancient world that between God or ultimate reality, whatever their God was, and us, there lay a whole set of layers of intermediate stages, places occupied by gods, demigods, other kinds of spiritual forces, the natural bodies uh, going through the sky at night, such as the, the sun, moon, and planets. And this is what the author means with his reference in verse 12, to the principalities and powers. The author makes the case that we're not, we're not struggling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers uh, that seek control over our lives. And so for the ancient Ephesians, these were spiritual beings or forces that occupied this space between them and God and could actually affect their relationship with God. They could actually limit their access to God. <clears throat> Now, for Christian readers of Ephesians and for us today, uh, the author's ap approximation is uh, the devil. The devil stands between us and God, and <clears throat> we have to be on the lookout for the wiles, the devil. Uh, the term wiles can also be translated as schemes or deceits, and we get our English word method from the Greek word used here, but uh, don't be deceived, this is not some neutral method in the New Testament. The term used here uniformly has a negative connotation and it refers to things that serve as obstacles between God and us. To put it simply, the author of Ephesians says that we're struggling against spiritual forces and these spiritual forces are evil and this spiritual force, specifically the devil, seeks to control us, to take away our, auto our autonomy, to take away the decisions that we otherwise would have to make for God. <clears throat> and this is a very important point when, it, when we come to consider <clears throat> the nature <clears throat> of the spiritual struggle that everyone faces. Now, the reality is, as it all has often been noted, that we are in a spiritual battle. And the author, makes a point that our battle is not against other people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. <clears throat> As the author says in verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, <clears throat> against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So evil is not simply other people. And so often in our divided times, we, we tend to act as if the evil that we should be taking a stand against is the evil purported by other people. But the author wants to remind us that evil ultimately has a supernatural origin, not a natural one. So the assumptions that the author brings to this passage and that we should take home with us today are number one, evil is malevolent, not neutral. <clears throat> evil is not simply some natural force that we have to uh, deal with every day. So for example, steak knives cut fingers as easy as easily they will cut steak. And that might be painful for us, but that's not really what the author means by evil. <clears throat> the law of gravity <clears throat> is as real when we're falling down the stairs as it is when we're deliberately walking up the stairs. But that doesn't mean <clears throat> that the law of gravity is evil. Instead, the evil that we are concerned about in this passage is something that is malevolent, something that has bad intent. And intent is very, very important here. Not just bad results, but bad intent. And that means then <clears throat> that the evil that the author is positing here is of a personal nature. Uh, to say that evil is personal doesn't necessarily mean that evil is a person in the same sense that you and I are persons, but it does mean that it carries some of the characteristics of personhood or personality. <clears throat> Specifically, uh, personhood implies agency. Agency means persons act with intent. We have, we sense that we have free choices and we make them. But not only do we have intent, we also have goal-oriented behavior. We have purposes, we have goals that we want to achieve by engaging in this intentional action. Well, evil is intentional. It has choices, it has chosen to harm us, and it has a purpose. And its purpose in harming us is to separate us from God. Just like those layers of demons and planets and stars that the ancients believed separated them from God, so evil, in our understanding, is Satan who desires to separate us from God. So that's really <clears throat> the kind of spiritual battle that we ought to be fighting. It's not against other people. It's against the supernatural forces that's that intend to separate us from God. <clears throat> As a solution, the author in verses 10 through 20 brings up the issue of the armor of God. Put on the full armor of God uh, as the author says, so that you may be able to withstand on an evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Then the author begins to describe <clears throat> the various elements of the armor of a Roman legionary. <clears throat> and here's a picture of a Roman legionary, at least a picture of what the armor perhaps looked like in its most simple form. And the author mentions six items of apparel that a Roman soldier would carry with him, <clears throat> mentions a belt, which you see here, and mentions a breastplate, also that you see here, mentions shoes, and a shield, and a helmet, and a sword. Now, he does not mention a couple of other items, which oftentimes Roman soldiers had. One would be would include greaves, G-R-E-A-V-E-S, 
And these were basically shin guards made out of metal that the soldier would wear to protect against uh, sword strikes to the lower legs. And then also the Peleus, which is the spear you see the model holding in his hand here. Today, we're concerned only with the fifth and sixth pieces of armor described by the author. That's the helmet and the sword. <clears throat> the helmet he calls the helmet of salvation. The ancient Roman army helmets were made of either iron or bronze. And as you can see, it, it, it's quite heavy and it would protect one's head from a, a direct strike by a sword, even a sharp sword. And by saying that the helmet is the helmet of salvation, the author is saying that <clears throat> an enemy might seek to strike us where in our most important parts, which would be either our chest or our head, but the helmet protects us in the same way that God's control over our destiny protects our salvation. The idea being here that our salvation is not subject to the whims or the will of some external being or force or evil power. Secondly, the author mentions at the end, the sword of the spirit. This calls to mind the sword of the Roman soldier, which was called the gladius, is a double-edged double 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 blade uh, that was about 18 inches in length. And the author quickly identifies the sword of the spirit as quote, the word of God. In the days prior to the Bible having been put together as one canon, we would infer then that the author means to claim that the sword of the spirit is the means by which God speaks to the church. And so by derivation, we would understand this to be the Bible. This is why we call the Bible, one of the reasons we call the Bible the Word of God. It's also one of the reasons we refer to the Bible as a sword. <clears throat> there are examples in Scripture of persons using Scripture as a, tool, as a tool to thwart Satan. You may recall the story of the temptations of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, where each time Satan attempts to tempt Jesus, Jesus replies by quoting from a piece of Old Testament scripture. You can also turn to Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, where the author mentions <clears throat> that the word of God is like a sharp two-edged sword. So the sword of the spirit, the word of God, is another important tool that we have in battling the forces of evil. And then in verses 18 through 20, author brings up the issue of prayer and why he only brings it up here we're going to discuss in a minute but it's interesting he doesn't bring it up here until this particular point in the passage he says that we should pray in the spirit what is praying in the spirit well praying in the spirit is uh, is uh, praying under the influence of or leadership of the holy spirit the holy spirit is deposited into our lives by God upon our salvation, and it is a tool that we have whereby we may gain access to God. Uh, the Holy Spirit teaches us about God. The Holy Spirit leads us toward the things of God. The Holy Spirit moves our conscience to obey God and not to disobey the Lord. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> also, according to Paul in the book of Romans, helps us with our prayers. And we're going to be talking about the Holy Spirit's role in prayer in a later lesson. 
Praying in the spirit does not necessarily mean a charismatic or trance-like state. We don't need to fall on the floor and roll around and go into another unaltered state of consciousness in order to pray in the spirit. The spirit is available to us in any phase of consciousness that we might have. It's available to us, but it is not something that is automatic for a Christian. Even though we have the spirit available to us, it is a gift that, uh, it, it is a resource that must be cultivated. And to pray in the spirit requires a certain set of dispositions without which it's gonna be very difficult for us to access this wonderful gift that we Christians all have. Uh, the requirements for doing that, I think are number one, humility. We need to recognize our inability to get along in life without the influence of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, it includes the aspect of confession. Uh, there are times when unconfessed sin in our lives or uh, a, a, an unfulfilled conscience, an unrelieved conscience, a conscience that is beset and weighed down with sin will have difficulty accessing the guidance of the spirit that should be available to all believers. And thirdly, and I think uh, very importantly, praying in the spirit means listening. All too often, our prayers include talking or speaking, but not listening to the Lord. Uh, I want to describe prayer in just a moment as a form of communion with God. And communion is not a one-way conversation. A communion is a two-way conversation. And unless we are listening to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit cannot guide us into all truth and into obedience, <clears throat> we must be willing to obey the leadership of the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit's going to continue to speak actively in our lives. So, Paul brings up prayer here as he brings the end of his book into focus. And he brings up the subject of our prayers. He asks the Ephesians to pray for two things. First of all, he asks the Ephesians to pray for the church as a whole. He says that they should pray for all the saints. And of course, in our Protestant tradition, saints are all Christians. So really the the author is encouraging the Ephesians to pray for the entire church, the, the worldwide church as a whole. But not only is this a general prayer, the author also enjoins the Ephesians to pray specifically for him. And Paul is not being selfish here. Uh, instead, uh, he is recognizing that his need of prayer is no less than anyone else's. This, of course, is what we call intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer means praying to God for the welfare of others. And we are commanded to do, that, commanded to do this repeatedly throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. And the Apostle Paul encourages <clears throat> intercessory prayer on his behalf, not so that he can be released from prison, because he's in prison in this particular passage, but rather that he could be a, continue to be a faithful witness and an ambassador in chains, as he says, uh, encouraging the uh, Ephesians to remain faithful in their prayers for him. <clears throat> well, we practice intercessory prayer on a regular basis. We do this in our Sunday school classes. We do this in our private devotions. We certainly do it in church. Uh, but which do you think is harder? Is it harder for you to pray for others or to ask others to pray for us? 
many times we freely offer up our prayers for those we think are burdened or hurting. And many times we'll pray for ourselves, but some of us are more hesitant to ask others to pray for us. Perhaps it goes back to that spirit of independence and autonomy that I referred to before. Uh, <clears throat> just like I, as I'm very hesitant to ask for directions whenever we get lost, I'm sometimes hesitant to ask others to pray for me whenever I feel like that I need it. And that's a problem that we need to overcome. Finally, I want to touch on an interesting item here, an interesting question that I think bears asking. The apostle mentions six pieces of Roman armor as part of the armor of God. He mentions the, the helmet, the shield, the belt, the sword, but he doesn't mention prayer, even though prayer is not something that a Roman soldier would wear. It seems to me that, that prayer would be a very helpful tool in the spiritual warfare in which uh, his readers are engaged. So why wouldn't the author mention prayer as another tool that we can use in our spiritual warfare against the forces of evil? I think for the author, prayer is the context in which spiritual warfare takes place. It's not a tool or a weapon that we would wield, whether defensive or offensive, in that warfare, but rather it's the context. Put another way, <clears throat> prayer is not a tool for fighting spiritual warfare. Prayer is spiritual warfare. It is the war. And when we engage in prayer, we should understand that we're doing nothing less than engaging forces of evil in a spiritual battle, a battle which God has ultimately won through the cross of Christ and through Christ's empty tomb, but a battle which continues to go on and that we can have influence in and a role in through prayer. I mentioned before that we should see prayer as a habit of communion with God. So I want to conclude by pointing out some, some dispositions of prayer that we need to keep in mind, and some of which are going to be brought up in later lessons in our quarterly. <clears throat> First of all, the New Testament teaches us that we should pray constantly. <clears throat> pray without ceasing, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do anything but pray, and we should just be in prayer all the time. Instead, we should have an attitude of prayer. An attitude of prayer basically means we should go about our lives in an attitude of constant continual communion with God, recognizing that God is always with us, that God is never absent from us, that God is never working against us, but always on our behalf, and that we should interpret all of our experiences through and in the context of prayer. Secondly, we should pray consistently. <clears throat> Don't worry about anything, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, but pray about everything. <clears throat> there is no topic that is off limits for prayer. There is no subject too sensitive for God's holy ears to hear. Instead, we should pray consistently and about all aspects of our lives, no matter how bad the sin, no matter how deep the darkness, no matter how heavy the burden, no matter how great the pain. Thirdly, we should pray fervently. James says the fervent prayer of a righteous person has great effect. Uh, the opposite of fervent would perhaps be casual, or flippant, uh, 
Prayer is not something that we do uh, in the sense of rote memory, just to go through the motions, an empty ritual. Instead, prayer should be from the heart. It should be honest. It should be forthright. And when we're honest with God, God then responds. Uh, and finally, our prayers should be given faithfully. Now, by faithfully, I don't mean consistently, which we've already said. Instead, I, I mean our prayers should be full of faith. Faithfully means full of faith. We should have faith when we pray that God is going to act. We should have faith when we pray that God is working on our behalf and will continue to do so. And we should have faith that when we pray as the Bible instructs, that God will help us hone our will and match it with God's own will. Because in the end, that is the ultimate purpose of prayer. Prayer does change things, as the old adage says. But prayer will go farther in changing us than it will in our external circumstances. Our goal in prayer should not be to bend external circumstances to our will, but rather for us to bend our own selves to God's will. So James says we should ask God who gives generously, gives, all, gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given you. But ask in faith, never doubting. <clears throat> now, doubting is an unavoidable part of human life. <coughs> but when the author says we should not doubt, the author says we should, what we should not doubt is that God will work through our prayers and that God is already working through our prayers to bring about God's will in our life. Then, and only then, will our prayer life and our will become aligned with God through the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I hope in the coming week that you have a chance to experience these characteristics of prayer. I hope that you have a chance to read ahead to next week's lesson, a set of interesting lessons on the ins and outs of prayer. And there's much for us to learn here. Let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give you thanks for your scripture to us today. <coughs> we pray that as we, as we study prayer, that you will inhabit our study that you will strengthen our resolve to listen to the movement of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We pray that we would pray faithfully, consistently, fervently, and constantly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I hope that you have a great week, and I hope that your prayer life is deepened significantly by our study in prayer this week and in the coming weeks. God bless you all.